was it? There's that. I just turned it off and back on again. Oh, lovely.
Good morning, everybody. If you're still making your way in, come on in. We're so glad you could join us. And we're going to begin our morning with worshiping in song. So if you'd stand with us if you're able.
for you this morning. Next song we're going to sing is called Promise Keeper. And the bridge of it is taken from Psalm 27, 13 through 14, where it says, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and take heart, and wait for the Lord. Excited to try this new one with you. And if you don't know it, feel free to just listen to the words um, about how our God is a promise keeper. His word will never fail. We can trust him. Our eyes will see miracles and victories.
gather together and worship with you, a God who, as we just sang, knows the end from the beginning, a God who has all things worked out, that even when things seem hard, when things seem difficult, we have a God we trust has all things worked out with a plan to bring good in the midst of hardship and trial even. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. My name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you're here with us this morning. If you are new or you're visiting with us this morning and you'd like to know more about the church or have questions, there is a connect card in the seat in front of you. We'd invite you to fill that out and you can drop that in the boxes on the back wall on your way out. Um, that's the way of us getting to know you, connect, being able to connect with you. Um, those boxes are also where you can place tithes and offerings if you want to give to what we're doing here as a, a church this morning. A couple of announcements, but before that, uh, just on a personal note, I just wanted to say thank you for many of you filled out, wrote cards, and dropped them off a couple of weeks ago. I just wanted to say thank you for that. It's a, it's a joy to be here and serve as your pastor. I wanted to say thank you for those cards and the, the tokens of appreciation many of you have given me this last couple of weeks. I also want to say thank you to those who have worked on getting the, the swing set installed out front. We're excited to see that in come to fruition soon. Um, but it's excited to see progress there. So thank you for those things. A couple of announcements. So one is tomorrow night at 6.30 at Bill and Lisa Miller's house. We will have a time with Mel and Amy Ellenwood. They were here last week and shared about their ministry um, in the Czech Republic with Josiah Venture, but they'll have time to share more uh, Tomorrow night at 6.30 at Bill and Lisa Miller Cuts. We'd invite you to be a part of that. Also today after Sunday school at about 11.45, we will have um, pizza with the pastor. So if you're new or just want to get to know Pastor Ian or myself, we'd invite you to come and have some pizza with us um, and yeah, spend some time together. Also coming up, this starting this week, we're going to have a few new... Uh, women's Bible studies that are starting, and so we're going to watch a video now to kind of preview that. Second Corinthians eleven fourteen says that our enemy disguises himself. Listen to this, like an angel of light. Y'all, he does not come to us in a red jumpsuit with a pitchfork and say, "Hey, it's me." Mm-mm. He disguises himself so closely to light. He wants what he is telling you to be so close to God's will for your life that you have a hard time telling the two apart. He wants that that person that he brings into your life, he wants that person and, and what they have to offer you to be so similar, I mean so close to what God says is right, that unless you have an authenticating light, unless you have an um 
objective standard by which you can run that suggestion, run that person, run that habit, run that opportunity underneath. You will never be able to tell with your physical eyes. I'll never be able to tell with my physical ears whether or not this is truth or it's just the enemy disguising himself as an angel of life and as truth in my experience. Spurgeon said this way, said it this way. I love it so much. He said, Lord, help us not only to be able to discern the difference between right and wrong, but please help us to be able to discern the difference between right and almost right. That's what we need to know. We need a light that will help us to see clearly the truth as it is meant to be seen. We live in a world of relativity. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but everybody's got their own truth. Everybody has their own light. Everybody has their own perspective. Everybody has decided that they're going to be swayed depending upon their political persuasion or depending upon how they feel in the moment. Everybody has given each other license to have their own truth. But as women who gird themselves in truth, it means that you are choosing as a lifestyle to uphold, to encourage, to support, to affirm God's standard as the standard for your life, as the standard for living. Good morning. So that is Priscilla Shire, and we will be doing her study, The Armor of God, starting this week. So everything you need to know is in your bulletin, but I am here to tell you, ladies, that if you haven't signed up or you're not sure if you can come, plan on being there this week. We um, are offering the same study two times every week. Well, I should say every other week. Tuesday evenings at 6 o'clock, Wednesday mornings at 8.30 here at the church. Everyone is welcome. Uh, if you haven't ordered a book, it's okay. It's not too late because this week we'll be meeting, watching one of the teaching videos, and then going from there. So please come, invite your friends, and if you have any questions, you can see me, Lori Kirby, or Karen Patterson. Thank you. As we continue in worship this morning, would you pray with me? Father God, we are so thankful for the chance to gather together as your people and to, to worship you, to be able to sing, to be reminded through our singing of your goodness of your glory of your love for us so God I just pray that as we sing this morning that the words that we sing would drill into our heart and they would become a heartfelt praise to you they not just be words that we sing because they're on a screen but they would be the overflow of our heart that we would desire to see you magnified and glorified and praised here this morning. Because you, God, are worthy of honor and praise. And as we come to your word this morning, would it mold us, would it shape us, would it conform us into the image of your Son, Jesus? Would we leave here looking more like Jesus than only walked in the door this morning? Would we 
continually be growing in our knowledge and love of you and we continually be becoming more and more holy individual. Father, as we gather, many of us, perhaps all of us have trials, have things that are fighting for space in our brain that are causing us to be distracted, causing us to worry, causing us to fear. And I pray that you, God, would be with us this morning, that you'd be with each of us in our struggles and in our trials and in our pain. I pray that you would work to give us a deep, abiding sense of assurance of your love and care for each of us, even in the midst of those trials. Would we be people who believe what we saying that you have the end worked out already, that you are at work now to use even our hardest moments for your good, to bring about your good purposes. That you call us to look with joy, look forward to the day when you will set all things right, when you will make all things new, and there will be no more pain or suffering or sin or death. Until that day comes, God, will we live as people who faithfully do the tasks you have given us to do, be people who glorify you. Let this morning be all about bringing you glory. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.
run after us even when we're not running toward you. You still come after us. And so we would we praise you for your goodness. We praise you for your love for us. Thank you that you are good, Father. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the ways that the, the New Testament describes the church is as a family, right? We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And we, the New Testament over and over describes the church as family. And one of my favorite manifestations of that is in child dedication. And so this morning we have a chance to dedicate several children. And in child dedication, like our hope, our goal is for us to say, like, it takes... Like a, a family to raise children, to come alongside children. It takes more than just a few people. It takes a family. And so in child dedication, a few things happen. First, it's a chance for a parent to come and ask the church, to before their church family, and say, like, look, we need you to come alongside us in this parenting adventure. It's also a chance for the church to then affirm that they will come alongside the parent that they seek to raise their children it's also a chance for parents to ask God to be central, be primary in the child's life, and to dedicate themselves to raising the child in the knowledge and love of Jesus. And so this morning, if you're involved in child dedication, I invite you to come forward and bring children to be dedicated forward. I also invite Pastor Ian to come up with us. Children being dedicated this morning. We have pictures on the screen. We have Lewis Benjamin Miller. We have Silas James Miller. And we have Alice May Miller. And Elijah John Mark Byer. So we're standing up here asking you as a church to come alongside us as parents in helping us raise these children to know and love Jesus. And so I'm going to start by asking you as a congregation to make a few commitments as part of that, and then Pastor Ian can ask us as parents to make a few commitments as part of that. So the first question to you as a congregation is this. Do you promise to support these parents with your prayer that they seek to fulfill the responsibilities to their children? If so, you can respond with, we do. Do you promise to assist these parents by providing encouragement, counsel, and help as they seek to raise their children to know and love Jesus? And do you promise to receive these children in love, pray for them, help, in, help instruct them in the faith, and encourage them? So I have three questions for the parents, and if you affirm these, please respond as we do. Do you recognize that your child do you recognize your child as a gift of God and give thanks for God's blessing? We do. Do you dedicate your child to the Lord who gave him or her to you? We do. 
Do you promise that with God's help and guidance, you will undertake to lead this child to trust Jesus as Savior and to serve him as Lord? I do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessing that children are. We thank you for the blessing that the church is to come alongside us as parents and help point our children to Jesus. And we thank you for the way you and your wisdom have provided the church to encourage one another, to support one another, to equip one another. I pray that that would be the case with this church body and these parents and these children, that they would come alongside. These children would come to know and love Jesus. That what a great Savior Jesus is. And that the church would be a instrument, the church body would be a, an instrument in pointing each of these children to know and love Jesus and to support these parents. We, we thank you for the gift that each of these children is. We thank you for the gift of the church, that you be honored in each one of their, these children's lives. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. We have, we have some friends who, who recently moved from a suburb kind of near the center of the Twin Cities, kind of right near the heart of Minneapolis, and they moved to a more rural area on the outskirt of the Twin Cities. And so we were hanging out with them shortly after they moved, and like one of them commented on how, like, how great it is to, that they get to occasionally see deer in their backyard. Uh, and it like, struck me, like... And, like how normal it's become for me to see to see deer, right? Like I just like, take it for granted now. Like we've lived here for a little more than two years, and like I can probably count on one hand the number of days I haven't seen a deer. Like it's just they're everywhere. Like I don't even blink anymore when I see a deer in my backyard. Like it's the fact of life. Conversely, if a kangaroo showed up in my backyard tomorrow, like, like I'd be mesmerized, like confused, but mesmerized. Like, it could be, like, be amazing. Like, there's a kangaroo, right? But in Australia, like, kangaroos are considered pests. Right? And they're often hunted and killed by farmers because they eat crops and they're annoying and they, they're, just, they're pests. Right? And the point being, like, when we become too familiar with a situation or a scene, like, it becomes easy to take that scene, that situation for granted. It can lose the sense of what makes our situation special. But then a change of scenery can cause us to appreciate anew what, what makes each scene special. So for those of you who have been here for a while, you know we've been making our way through the book of Luke for quite some time. We started the book of Luke in, in late January of 2021, so we're coming up on two years going through the book of Luke <clears throat> And part of what take, has taken us so long to go through Luke is that it's a long book. Right? It's 24 chapters, 1,100 verses, like almost nearly 20,000 words in the book of Luke total. Like by word count, it's the longest book in the New Testament. Right? So it just takes time to faithfully walk through a book that long. But another reason that it's taken a while to go through Luke is that we've 
paused along the way, right, to, to take break from the book of Luke, to go to other series. And I've done that intentionally to give us like a change of scenery, so we don't take for granted all that makes Luke special, so we don't get bogged down in the book of Luke. And as we've taken these kind of change of scenery breaks, I've tried to be very intentional about what I've changed the scene to. Specifically, I've tried to point out each time we take a break to the Old Testament. And so this morning we're going to start a new series going through the book of First and Second Kings, that focusing specifically on the lives of Elijah and Elisha. It is, for like a coincidence, that we dedicated Elijah on the day we're starting this series. It just kind of happened that way. But so we're starting, going through this series, looking at the lives of Elijah and Elisha from like the end of 1 Kings, starting in 1 Kings 17, to the beginning of 2 Kings. Right. And the reason I've always kind of tried to point us back to the Old Testament during our break from Luke is, like, I think it's really easy sometimes to treat the Old Testament as kind of the the junior varsity team of Team Bible. Right? Like, like those have to make up roughly like 75% of our Bible, and yet it gets referenced way less. Right? Like, according to one, <clears throat> one study, 90% of sermons in evangelical churches reference at least one book of the New Testament each Sunday. But only... 60% of the time, just an Old Testament book get referenced in a typical evangelical sermon. Likewise, if you are to study of like all the most cited scriptures in the, uh, systematic theology textbooks, and of the 100 most cited scriptures in these theology textbooks, only 9 were from the Old Testament. Right? It's really easy to go out or go online and buy a copy of just the New Testament, or like New Testament and Psalm, but it's Hard to find just a copy of the Old Testament, unless you're buying like a Hebrew Bible. And yet, like, the Old Testament, it's not the JV of team Bible. Like, it, it was Jesus' scripture. Right? When Paul says to Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, when he says that, he has in mind, at least partially, if not exclusively, right, the Old Testament. Like we know that the center of our faith is the person and work of Jesus. So maybe it feels natural to that, like our focus should be on the New Testament that talks about Him. But in Luke 24, Jesus tells us that everything in Moses and the prophets, that is, the Old Testament, was about Him as well. The Old Testament ultimately is about Jesus. We can't fully understand the New Testament without also knowing our Old Testament. Testament. Even in the passage we're going to read this morning, we will see how Jesus later uses one of the stories from Elijah's life in his own ministry. The quote from St. Augustine where he says this, The New Testament is in the Old Concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Revealed. The point being, you can only fully understand and appreciate the Old Testament if you know the New Testament. And vice versa. You can only fully understand and appreciate the New Testament if you know the Old Testament. So like, one of my desires for us as a church, as a church body, is that like, we be people who know and love God's Word. And like all of God's Word. 
That we are people whose, whose understanding of the New Testament is enhanced because we also know the Old Testament. But like, look, if, I, if I was here for 30 years, right, and I spent half our time, half my sermons in the Old Testament, like I'd still barely put a dent in the Old Testament. So one of my hopes for this is that, not that you'll get all your Old Testament knowledge from these sermons, but that these sermons would spur you on and give you a desire to go and read the Old Testament along with the New Testament for yourself. This would fuel a desire for you to know your Bible holistically. You'd see the Old Testament and the New Testament working together to paint a picture of Jesus. And you'd be driven to go spend time in the Word for yourself. So that's kind of why we're starting this series on Elijah and Elisha. And we're going to look this morning at Elijah's emergence on the scene. When Elijah first shows up. But before we do that, we need to understand a little bit of kind of the situation in Israel before Elijah comes on the scene. And so when Elijah and Elisha show up, Israel have been divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah for quite some time. And so Elijah and Elisha are going to minister primarily in the northern kingdom of Israel. And Israel, when they come on the scene, it's been marked by bad king after bad king after bad king after bad king. There's not been one good king in the entire history of Israel, of the northern kingdom of Israel by the time they come on the scene. And the southern kingdom of Judah had some good kings and some bad kings, but the northern kingdom, all bad kings. And so Elijah comes on the scene during the reign of King Ahab. And here's how the book of Kings describes Ahab in chapter 16. It says this, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And so when you come from a line of all bad kings, and you get called the worst, that's really bad. That's like saying Rex Grossman was the worst Bears quarterback of the last 25 years. But they've all been bad. So if you're the worst, that's really bad. That's Ahab. Right? He's, he's the worst of the worst. Maybe you're inclined to ask, like, well, what makes him so bad? That the next verse tells us. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebet, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. So not only did he commit the sins of the previous kings of Israel, but he also married a foreign woman, Jezebel, and through her, he introduced his Baal worship to Israel. And so... Baal was a little g god of some of the people in the region surrounding Israel. And they believed that Baal was the god of rain, the god of fertility. And so he was kind of in charge of rain and crop production. But they also believed that Baal needed to go once a year and had to submit himself to the god of death. And so in their polytheistic worldview... Baal would go and he'd submit himself to the god of death, a god named Mot, and then later be revived. And that made sense in that culture, because where we have four seasons here, they only had two seasons there. They had like a, a rainy season and a dry season. And so you imagine that during the rainy season, Baal was alive and providing rain so that crops would grow and be fertile. And then during the dry season, they imagine that 
Baal was submitting himself to Mot, the god of death. And to let the worldview right, that Ahab brings into Israel. That idea that, hey, you worship Baal, and if you worship him rightly, he will bring the rains and the crops will produce, and we'll have enough to eat to worship Baal. That's what Ahab is bringing into Israel. Baal is the god of rain, god of life-giving food. So understanding that it's going to matter as we try to understand all that takes place in our passage this morning. So with that in mind, let's jump in here to 1 Kings chapter 17, starting in verse 1, we read this. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Right. So it's interesting, like, Elijah's a pretty important character in the Bible. Like, if you were to list like five Old Testament characters you know, like, you'd probably make the list. And yet, this is like the first place he shows up. Right. There's no long list of qualifications. There's nothing about his genealogy. There's no backstory. It's just, now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead. And to give you a sense of how insignificant Tishbe is... We don't know where it was. Like, it wasn't significant enough to survive the historical record. Right? It's just, like, we know Gilead was like, one of the regions across the Jordan River, kind of isolated from the rest of Israel. Still part of Israel, but kind of off in the middle of nowhere. So he's from there. Right? He's, Elijah is a nobody from nowhere. Right? And yet the first time we see him, he's speaking God's words to a king. But isn't that kind of like the way of God? Right? That he would use like the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That he would use the weak things of the world to, to shame the strong. What he's doing here with Elijah, this nobody from nowhere speaking God's truth to a king. So Elijah shows up on the scene and he says, that the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve. There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. And that's a direct shot at Baal. Baal is the one who brings the rains, according to that worldview. And now Elijah shows up and he says, It's the Lord God that controls whether it rains or not, not Baal. And it sets up a theme for all of Elijah's ministry, right? that it. Yahweh against the false gods. We see that very clearly right, next week when we look at Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Caramel. But we see it in today's passage as well. And in today's passage, that the question is which God is able to provide for their people? Right? Yahweh, the God of Israel, or Baal? And what we see in this passage ultimately is that it's the Lord God of Israel that provides for his people. We see this as we continue in verse 2. Then the Lord, word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The raven brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. 
and he drank from the brook. So what we see here is like the Lord is providing for Elijah like through through natural barriers. Right? Or maybe we could put natural in quote because a drought is considered a natural phenomenon, but clear, clearly ordained by God. There's already a drought going on, the drought, the drought that Elijah promised. Right? And now God sends Elijah out east of the Jordan River. Like We don't know exactly where this Kareth River was, where this brook was. But if it was east of the Jordan River, then it was in what is modern-day Jordan. And I've said this before, but like, I went on my trip to, to Israel a couple years ago. Like, we went and we visited Jordan for a couple days. And it was my favorite part of the trip. And I loved it so much because like, the terrain was so rugged and stark. Like, it felt otherworldly. In fact, when they filmed the scenes set on Mars for the movie The Martian, they filmed them in Jordan. That's how, that's how stark of a landscape Jordan had. It's just dry and rugged and dead. And God sends Elijah there during a drought. You can imagine how hopeless finding food would be in a landscape like that during a drought. Elijah must have wondered, like, what is God doing? Like, why would he send me here now? But what God was doing is that he was showing that he could provide for his people, no matter the circumstances. Even if it required ravens coming and bringing him food. And that's what happened, right? Elijah ate bread and meat every morning and every evening, as they were provided by ravens. God provided for him. There's no barrier, no natural disaster, no drought, no barren like it. They're going to stop God from providing for his people that he sees fit. Like that should encourage us, right? That no matter what we're going through, no matter what challenge we may face, that like God is able to provide for us in the midst of any trial. And we see the theme continue that the passage goes on. Continuing in verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and he asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring, me a, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. 
She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. In keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? And he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. So over and over and over again, in this passage, we see the Lord providing, even in the midst of all kinds of trials and barriers. We are talking about the natural barrier where God provided for Elijah. But we see a number of other barriers in this passage. The first being like, a cultural barrier. Like after his time of being fed by ravens, God sends Elijah to this widow in Zarephath. And like, it's not really important that you know where Zarephath is, but it's important that you know that it's not in Israel. It was commonly believed in those times that a God's power only extended to the place where the people who followed that God ruled. Every nation had their own gods, and wherever that nation ruled, those gods had power. That was the common view of the day. But now Yahweh, the God of Israel, he sends Elijah into a region where Israelites don't rule. So by the logic of that day, like, Israel's God should have no power in Zarephath. The passage makes clear that Yahweh is more than able to cross cultural and geopolitical barriers in order to provide for his people. Like a lot of times when we think of the Old Testament, one of the critiques of the Old Testament is that like, it's only about Israel. Like God had no concern for the nations. But this passage, that's not the case. It had always been God's plan for His provision and for His goodness to extend to the nations. Like Israel, the nation was supposed to be a beacon of light to the nations around them and that they would draw them to follow and worship the Lord. But Israel failed time and time again. That doesn't mean that God gave up on the nation. And ultimately this cross-cultural provision we see in this passage points us forward to, to Jesus, right, who will ultimately tear down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. In fact, in, in Luke 4, right, Jesus himself references this story when he's talking about his whole ministry. Right? He's like defending his interaction with the Gentiles, and he says this, 
I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years. And there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet, Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Now, the, despite the fact that God, this woman is not an Israelite, right? God provides for her in miraculous ways. He provides water and oil that don't run out. The God of Israel's powers, our God's powers, do not end at some imaginary line in the sand. God can and will display His power whenever and wherever He deems fit. He will, he will provide despite supposed cultural barriers. He will reach out to whoever He deems fit. He also provide for people despite behavioral barriers. Or for another way, like God will provide even in spite of sin. Like we see it in this woman's case. To notice how like, God tells Elijah right, that he has commanded this widow to provide for him. Right? It's the same word that God had said earlier, that God had commanded the raven to provide food for Elijah. But whereas the ravens obeyed immediately, they brought Elijah food every morning and every evening, this widow, when Elijah first asked for some food, says no. Right? But the fact that God had commanded her, when Elijah asked for a piece of bread, she says, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And God had commanded this widow to feed Elijah. Then Elijah shows up and he asks for food and her response is, leave me alone. Like, I have just enough for my son and I to eat and our one last meal and then we're going to go die. Right? So we aren't going to waste our last little bit of food on you no matter what God has told me. Right? And at that point, in the face of her rebellion, her disobedience, like God could have said, well, I offered Okay, Elijah, like, let's go find someone else who will obey me the first time. No questions asked. But that isn't how God and Elijah respond to this woman's disobedience. Instead, Elijah shows compassion. And he says, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me. From what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. God doesn't let this woman's sin stand in the way of his desire to provide for her. He didn't give up on her despite her sin. He continues to provide even in the midst of her disobedience. Like, aren't you glad God treats you the same way? Aren't you glad that God doesn't give up on us when we sin? That He continues to pursue us and come after us. We're just saying that song about God running after us. And if God is running after us, the implication is that there's sometimes when we're running away, although He wants to run after us. And He does. He pursues us. He shows compassion to us. He provides for us even in the midst of our sin. And He does it here with this woman as well. If that's not the case, right? God would have written me off a long time ago. 
But God loves us and He provides for us despite our sin, despite our disobedience. That should should cause us to, to be amazed and to love Him over and over and over again. And yet, we can still be so prone to forget His goodness to us. Especially in the midst of emotional situations. Strong emotional situations can, can cause us to erect barriers between ourselves and God. But the passage again shows us that, that God is able to provide even in the midst of those emotional barriers. In verse 17, we are told, Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse. And finally stopped breathing. So God had been providing miraculously for this woman, her son, and for Elijah for an extended period of time. Remember when Elijah showed up at first, like she was going to make them their last meal, then they were going to die. Like they were on the brink. But Elijah and God through Elijah have provided over and over and over again in miraculous ways so that they always have had enough to eat for. We're not told how long, but some extended period of time. This boy's life, this widow's life, has been extended by Elijah. But now, sometime later, the son dies. And what is the widow's reaction? To get mad at Elijah. Verse 18, she said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Elijah, they extended that boy's life for so long, and yet her grief over the death of her son caused this widow to pour out her anger on Elijah. It doesn't, doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't make logical sense that she would get mad at Elijah for the death of her son here. But that can be how grief works. That it, it clouds our, our rationality can cause it to erect emotional behavior between ourselves and God. But once again, we see like when we erect those barriers, God doesn't check out. God sticks with this woman in the midst of her grief-induced anger. Even though her anger is entirely unfounded, even though God has extended her son's life. And likewise, Elijah doesn't, doesn't hear this woman and... Rebuker. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, like, whatever, lady. God, I've done to provide for you, but if you want to be mad, like, I'll just leave. He doesn't do that. Instead, he says, give me your son. And he took him from her arms, and he carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and he laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, you have brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with. My Lord and my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. Elijah goes out of his way on God's behalf to help this widow, even though she's being angry with him in an unfounded way. The Lord, despite this widow's anger, he listened to Elijah's pleas. And in verse 22 we read, The Lord heard Elijah cry. The boy's wife returned to him and he lived. 
Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. God provided, even in the midst of ultimately the ultimate barrier, death, God still provided. Not even death, the death of his son would stand in the way of providing for the needs of his people. He provides a way for, for death to be overcome. I find it interesting that after her son died, the widow said, Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? The woman sees the death of her son as a punishment for, for her sin. But then the power of God raises the son from death. And ultimately, of course, like this widow's son's death like, couldn't take care of the widow's sin. But there is a son who would die, who would take care of her sin and then be raised again to life. And this the picture of a son who died for sin and then would raise life points us forward to Jesus, the Son of God the Father, who, despite living a sinless life, despite not deserving death in any way, goes to the cross on our behalf. And then dying on the cross, he dies as punishment for the sins of everyone who believes in him. If you trust in him, then your sins are, are paid for by the Son. And yet because he lived the sinless, perfect life, death couldn't hold him. Death was defeated. The ultimate barrier was torn down when God the Son was raised from the grave. That, that death has lost its sting. It's been defeated by Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection. Look, if you're, you're here and you've never trusted Jesus, you've never had your sins dealt with by Him. Apart from Jesus, apart from Him going to the cross on your behalf for your sins, and your sins are on your conscience, and you will face judgment for those sins. But through faith in Jesus, He he goes to the cross, He dies in your place for your sin. If you've never trusted in Jesus, you never believed in Him, I would urge you to do that. For those who are here to have trusted Jesus, right, then this passage ought to encourage us, to give us hope that no matter how challenging, how bleak circumstances may seem, like God always is able to provide for His people. He is always in the process of working out His good purposes. And if you find yourself in the moment lacking something, or feeling deprived of something, that God has a purpose in that, and He will bring about His good purposes in the end. Whatever you're going through, there's no challenge, no barrier, no problem that is too big for God to handle. And the ultimate picture of that is Jesus. Right? That 
the ultimate barrier any of us faces that this life ends in death. That there is no escaping that death. And yet through Jesus, through believing in Him, we can have eternal life. And in that eternal life, all those trials, all these hardships, all these struggles that we face in this life will be done away with. There will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more death. We will live forever with Jesus and worship God in glory forever and ever. God provided a way for that to happen and God provides for His people even now in this life. That whatever challenges you may face today, whatever lack you may feel you have, to urge you, feel encouraged by this story that God will provide. There is no barrier too great. There is no challenge too big for God to provide. It may not be in exactly the way we would prefer, but God will provide and it will be for His glory in accordance with His good purposes. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that just as You provided for Elijah and the widow and her son, You provide for us. We confess, God, that there are times when we lose sight of all the incredible ways You provided for us throughout our lives. We forget that each breath we breathe, each beat of our heart is ultimately provided by You. It's so easy to wonder where you are, so easy to feel your situation is hopeless. God, I pray that you would give us assurance and confidence and hope that if you can provide bread and meat morning and evening for Elijah through ravens, if you can provide a bottomless sort of flour and oil for this widow and her son, then there is nothing you can't provide for us. Father, would you give us eyes to see and appreciate all the ways that you already provide for us that we're prone to take for granted. Would you give us patience and endurance as we walk through seasons where we are waiting for your provision? And ultimately, God, would you give us hope that there is coming a day when All our needs will be provided for when there will be no more lack, there will be no more trial, there will be no more suffering. Would you help us to look forward with hope to the day when you return and set all things right? Pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. Let you go from here. My hope, my prayer for you is that you would go with a, an abiding sense that you have a God who provides. You are dismissed. you
right here.